0: My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true when a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more. Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861 to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the Rank and File. This is... EPISODE 23, CHAPTER 11 THE BATTLE OF THE WILDERNESS DESCRIPTION OF WILDERNESS 155th AND AIRS' BRIGADE, OPEN BATTLE 140th NEW YORK VOLUNTEERS, SUFFERS TERRIBLE PUNISHMENT BATTLEGROUND, NOT ADAPTED FOR ARTILLERY CAPTAIN GEORGE M. Laughlin Commands one hundred and fifty-fifth skirmish line. Air's brigade attacks with tremendous energy. Battle rages with tremendous fury. Contest too unequal to be maintained. Enemy falls with fearful energy on air's exposed flank. Brigade compelled to retreat. Woods on fire. Many dead and wounded left between lines cremated. Regiment on skirmish line during night, overpowered by enemy's solid battle line. Regiment falls back and is fired upon. Heated colloquy of Colonel Pearson with General Ayers. Colonel Pearson placed under arrest. Many wounded become prisoners. Casualties. The road over which the Fifth Army Corps had marched from Germana Ford on the afternoon of the 4th of May, 1864, ran in a southeasterly direction for six or seven miles, where it formed a junction, the Orange Turnpike. Running almost due west from Fredericksburg to Orange Courthouse, and the bivouac of the 155th that night was near the junction of these two roads, in the vicinity of the old Wilderness Tavern. The slumbers of the troops during the night, before the battle, was serene and undisturbed. Daylight, which broke about five o'clock on the morning of May 5th, found the troops of Ayers Brigade refreshed and on the alert for what the day should bring forth. The sequel showed they had but little time to await the discovery. The sun, in blood-red splendor, as if ominous of the dreadful carnage, which was soon to follow in the dense entanglement of the jungle in which Grant's entire army was soon to become enmeshed, was pouring his slanting beams through the openings in the woods, so richly clad in the green robes of early summer. The Wilderness, Combat Opens The wilderness, on the outskirts of which the 155th rested so peacefully that calm spring night, and in the jungles and ravines, of which it was so soon to participate in one of the mightiest and bloodiest, if not decisive, battles of the war, is a wild, desolate region of worn-out farms, covered with a dense growth of scraggy oak and pines, sassafras and hazel, interlaced with an entanglement of vines that rendered its recesses almost impenetrable. This forbidding forest, of twenty miles square, was intersected with only a few narrow road and many deep ravines, which made only parts of it accessible to the Confederates, who, however, were already familiar with every foot of ground within its boundaries. About nine o'clock on the morning of the 5th, a rattling of carbines from the cavalry outposts in advance revealed the presence of the Confederates in the neighborhood. And the 155th, knew that Grant's quest had been successful. Ayers Brigade, in the advance, was formed in two lines of battle on the right of the Orange Turnpike, the 140th New York on the left, prolonged by the United States regulars on the right, composed the first line. The second line was formed immediately in the rear of the first by the 146th New York on the left, just in the rear of the 140th, and prolonged by the 91st and 155th Pennsylvania on the right, the latter regiment being in the rear of the regulars, all these regiments forming and ready to advance as a double line of battle. All the regiments composing these two battle lines unslung and piled their knapsacks, leaving guards over them. About noon the final command, forward, was given, and the troops advanced slowly and laboriously through the undergrowth, with considerable noise caused by the rattling of tin cups, bayonets and canteens clashing together. A most accurate and graphic account of this day's battle in the wilderness by Captain Porter Farley of the 140th New York Volunteers, in the same brigade and location as the 155th is here introduced. Adjutant Porter Farley's account of the battle. Quote, after crossing the river, we marched in a southeasterly direction about seven miles on the road leading from Germana Ford to the Orange Turnpike. All was quiet, and we heard not a shot that day. An ominous silence was our only welcome as we found ourselves surrounded by the tangled thickets of the Spotsylvania wilderness. When we arrived at the junction of the two roads, we turned to the right and proceeded for about a mile up the Orange Pike and bivouacked in the woods on the right of the road. We had started out on this campaign, a regiment more than six hundred strong, and in point of material, discipline, and appearance, we had the vanity to think that there was no other organization in the army superior to us. Our distinctive Zouave uniform had made us well known throughout the army, particularly as we had spent the winter beside the railroad over which so many men and officers had passed on their way to and from Washington. Washington. That fatal 5th of May was to see this splendid regiment shorn of half its strength, and mourning the loss of half its members. About 9 o'clock on the 5th of May, we became aware of the enemy were in front, up the Orange Turnpike. This road, for some miles to the westward, was perfectly straight, so that we could clearly see groups of men crossing it some two miles distant from us. No large bodies of troops could be seen moving upon it, which, however, was no proof against their presence in the woods on either side, and some one or two pieces of artillery were planted on the road, and began firing in our direction, but at very long range, and doing no damage. A section of one of our batteries was sent a short way up the road, and there took position and replied to them, Lieutenant Colonel E. A. Otis of our regiment was out in the woods in command of the picket line of our division. The rebel skirmishers soon reached them, and a rattling fire began. Meanwhile, we had piled our knapsacks, and had left them in charge of a guard of two men. The regiment formed a new line, a few rods in front of our bivouac, and there waited for more than an hour expecting any moment to advance, the skirmish line firing in our front continuing all this time. After advancing about half a mile we reached our picket line, now acting as skirmishers and engaged with those of the enemy, we marched right through and left them behind. The rebel skirmishers fell back as we went on. In about five minutes we reached an opening in the woods some acres in extent and forming a sort of valley or hollow two or three hundred yards in width directly across our line of march. The rebels were posted on the crest of the hill opposite us, just in the edge of the woods which skirted the hollow. The very moment we appeared they gave us a volley at long range, but evidently with very deliberate aim and with serious effect. The mare which Colonel Ryan rode was grazed by a bullet on the fetlock, and she kicked and plunged so that he had to dismount and leave her to be led to the rear. Lieutenant John Hume, who had lately been promoted from regimental commissary sergeant, and who here went under fire for the first time, was struck in the knee, and lost his leg in consequence. Quite a number of enlisted men were also wounded among them. A man named William Hurl, of my company, his gun and accoutrements were immediately appropriated by a regimental butcher, Gaspar Trom, who had no arms of his own, but who, in obedience to orders, followed the line up closely and now took his place in the ranks, The moment we received this volley, Colonel Ryan ordered us to lie down and fix bayonets. In a minute or two, one of General Ayer's staff, either Captain Winthrop or Lieutenant Swan, rode along to see if we were ready to advance. In a few seconds, the order was passed along the command, and the regiment started at full speed with a shout which drowned all other sounds. Captain Granson's was the color company, and mine was next to it on the left and we were just in the middle of the line. Colonel Ryan was with us, he and I running so near together that we exchanged words as we went across the field. Of course, the moment we sprung to our feet, the enemy opened fire upon us, and many of our men fell before we reached the skirt of the woods where the rebels were posted. Unhindered by the fire that thinned its ranks, the regiment never slackened its speed till it reached the woods, where it expected to close on the enemy with the bayonet but they fell back just as we were about to reach them, retiring slowly into the undergrowth. The moment we reached the woods our speed was checked, and then for the first time we opened fire, but still kept advancing slowly. Ryan passed rapidly along the whole line, waving his hat, for he had no sword with him, having left it sticking in the girth of his saddle. He was full of energy, And though we were in a forest, he showed himself at every point of our thin line during these few desperate minutes, as we drove the enemy before us. It soon became evident that our position was a very perilous one, for, while we had charged across an open valley, the regulars on our right, starting at the same time that we did, had been obliged to force their way through the bushes, and were consequently far behind us. Our right flank was thus exposed to a raking fire, The regiment melted away like snow. Men disappeared as if the earth had swallowed them up. Every officer about me was shot down. No other officers were now to be seen. And only a few men scattered here and there among the bushes. It seemed as if the regiment had been annihilated. In charging across the clearing, we had moved in a direction somewhat oblique to the road, so that our center companies were upon it when they reached the woods. Several times during the fight, I crossed from one side of it to the other. Some two or three minutes later, the 146th New York, led by Colonel Jenkins, came up to the support of our right wing. Though really by that time, they had to take the brunt of the fight, for our organization was virtually destroyed. Jenkins' men came up in good style, and he led them on bravely. It was the last time I ever saw him, strange as it may seem. Though dressed in a colonel's uniform with shoulder straps, he was lost in that charge, and was never afterward heard of. The 146th advanced into the woods somewhat to the right of the road where I was standing. A half dozen or so of our men were firing from behind shelter at the sides of the road, but they had no line of battle left. Just then, there were two terrific explosions in the hollow behind us, ACCOMPANIED BY THE CRASH OF SHOT THROUGH THE TREES AND FOLLOWED BY A DENSE CLOUD OF SMOKE WHICH COMPLETELY ENVELOPED US. TAKEN COMPLETELY BY SURPRISE BY THIS FIRE IN OUR REAR, WE JUMPED INTO A gully WHICH HAD BEEN worn BY THE RAIN BESIDE THE ROAD AND IN ITS FRIENDLIER SHELTER RETREATED SOME RODS DOWN THE HILL. THE GUNS BLAZED AWAY, AND WE COULD SEE NOW THAT THEY WERE A SECTION OF OUR OWN ARTILLERY PLANTED IN THE HOLLOW AND FIRING UP THE ROAD WHERE WE HAD BEEN STANDING. At that same time, we saw emerging from the woods on the right a rebel flag and full line of battle. We were nearly cut off, but taking our only chance for escape started back across the open field. Sergeant McDermott, of Company K, was my only companion in this inglorious retreat. It seemed as if the bullets flew about faster than ever, and I was never more surprised in my life than when we reached unhurt the shelter of the woods on the other side. The artillerymen saw their danger at the same time, but it was too late. Most of their horses were shot, and the others became entangled in their harnesses. The guns were lost, and most of the men were killed or taken prisoners. The officer in command of the section, Lieutenant Shelton, Battery D, 1st New York Artillery, was among those captured. His conduct was gallant to be sure, but from my standpoint, the road up which he fired, I can hardly call it wise. I have been informed by General Warren that he directed a section of artillery to accompany our brigade, so that when the enemy should be broken, the guns might open fire, and their sound be heard along the line, thus giving confidence to our men. But the fact is that those two guns were unlimbered in about the lowest part of the hollow, and fired two or three rounds haphazard into the woods where some few of our men were yet left, and where the 146th New York had just entered to suffer a loss fully equal to ours. Upon regaining the shelter of the woods at a point somewhat to the left of the turnpike, I found scores of men, some wounded and others not, but no organized troops. Working my way up the road, I there met Colonel Ryan, two officers and perhaps a dozen of our men. It was a wild meeting. Overcome by our conflicting emotions of wrath, excitement, and mortification, we all talked at once. My God, said Ryan, I am the first colonel I ever knew who couldn't tell where his regiment was. Each told hurriedly what he knew of those he had seen hurt, and as we were still in an exposed place where the bullets occasionally flew in among us, we fell back to the place where we had left our knapsacks. Then, in an incredibly short time, The remainder of the regiment rallied. The 146th New York, Colonel Jenkins in command, advanced nobly to the assistance of the 140th and suffered severely. Captain George M. Loughlin of the 155th Regiment, Commands Skirmish Line. All the regiments in Ayers Brigade, on the right of the 140th New York, did not sustain the enormous losses such as the regiment did, but all suffered heavy losses. On the first advance of Ayers Brigade, on the morning of the 5th, Colonel Pearson had detailed Captain George M. Loughlin to command the skirmish line of the 155th, who discharged that hazardous duty with his men under the greatest difficulties. In advancing the skirmishers, Captain Loughlin, noticed something moving at a short distance in the woods in front. In order to find out whether it was the enemy lurking there, he ordered his men to fire in the direction of the supposed sounds and movements, although from the underbrush nothing certain was visible. The firing elicited the fact that it was the Confederate skirmish line, and then Captain Lawland's surmise was correct. This, no doubt, was the opening of the ball, as it is termed, in the Great Battle of the Wilderness." The firing of the enemy at once became so severe that Captain Lawlin ordered his men to lie down and continue firing as rapidly as possible. While directing the fire of his men, he noticed the gun drop from the nerveless hands of the nearest man on his right as the enemy's bullet pierced his flesh. An instant later the reclining soldier on the left of the officer was shot in the neck, inflicting a mortal wound. While still engaged in bravely facing the enemy in this perilous position, Captain Lawlin and his skirmishers were reinforced by the approach of the battle line of the 155th and Ayers' Brigade. On first coming in contact with the enemy, Ayers' Brigade advanced to the attack with tremendous energy, driving them back with complete success, and if the brigade had been properly supported, it is quite probable that the Confederate troops would have been involved in hopeless disaster. As it was, however, a whole Confederate division was rushed to the rescue of their shattered column, and in what seemed the moment of victory, Air's Brigade was brought to a sudden standstill, and the battle raged with tremendous fury. The contest, however, soon became too unequal to be long maintained by the Union troops. It had been intended that the line of Air's Brigade should be prolonged and sustained by a division of the Sixth Corps. But the denseness of the woods and the absence of roads prevented the troops from making connection on the exposed flank of Ayres' brigade therefore the enemy fell with fearful energy and being thus overpowered the brigade was compelled to fall back the dense barrier of brushwood through which the 155th had to make their way and the advance was difficult work even without the effort to preserve alignment Consequently, the line was very irregular, and broken by the time it reached the thin line of regulars who preceded the right of Air's Brigade as skirmishers. In a few minutes the enemy, an overpowering number, was encountered advancing swiftly to meet the advancing regiments of Ayers Brigade, their front lines forced forward by those in the rear. Instantly the fire became general, and the sulphurous smoke settled down over the combatants in the thicket as if it would shield the victims of the terrible, shouting, screaming war demon, against which the furious fire from the 155th and other regiments seemed to have no visible effect, as if to hide from view the victims of man's wrath, everywhere a gentle, steady rain of twigs and leaves was falling to the earth, pruned by the same hail that penetrated the flesh and splintered the bones of the devoted men of the few regiments that vainly fought to destroy or at least check this terrific onslaught. The colors round which the men of the regiment had so often rallied remained tightly furled around the staff. No room was there amid the thorns and briars of that enslaving jungle to unfurl the flag. Closer and yet closer came the hostile hosts, Faster and more furious fought the Union troops. Yelling like devils, the enemy fell upon the Union line. A Confederate captain falls dead, shot by a soldier of the 155th. Three or four Confederates throw the body of their officer in a blanket and bear him off, while their strong lines, yelling and cursing, burst upon and intermingle with the men of the 155th. Throw down your guns. Drop your colors. Surrender! shouted the enemy sergeant lawson of company h of the 155th having no time to go around jumped into a thicket of brambles tearing his way through badly lacerating his body and leaving portions of his tattered garments impaled upon the thorns color sergeant marlin with a firmer grasp of the colors turned and amid a shower of bullets tore his way through the bushes towards the rear the remainder of the regiment quickly abandoned the unequal conquest, and retreated. Had the enemy not become as badly disorganized as the men of the 155th, few of the wounded would have escaped. Indeed, quite a number of the regiment, as it was, were both wounded and captured. The battle, in the somber recesses of the wilderness on the 5th of May, was a pandemonium of horrid sounds and a panorama of awful scenes. Suddenly a sullen roar smote the ear, gradually dying out until the sounds resembled that made by a boy, running with a stick pressed against a paling fence, again swelling up into a continuous roar. It could not be said with truth that Ayers' brigade was whipped by the Confederates, but it was simply overpowered by vastly superior numbers. The brigade was soon reformed in the rear, and was again ready and eager for action. Both officers and men of the 155th and other regiments of Air's Brigade, chagrined and humiliated, declared that they had not been whipped, but simply overwhelmed by the enemy. Incidents of the Battle The clearing or open space referred to in the narrative of Captain Porter Farley, over which Ayers' brigade drove the enemy, was the homestead of a confederate named Major Lacey, whose house was surrounded by a lawn and green meadows. In this opening of the Battle of the Wilderness, there was no desultory firing to mark the beginning of the fray, but the fire opened instantly on both sides as soon as the opposing forces came into contact, and became deadly amid the bushes. So fierce was the contest that both lines of Air's Brigade became confused and fell back, the underbrush between the lines being cut off as if it had been mown. The regulars, the 91st Pennsylvania and the 155th Pennsylvania, were thrown into confusion and were unable to tell where they were firing into friend or foe. And finally, they fell back through the underbrush. The two pieces of Union artillery mentioned by Captain Farley got halfway across the clearing when all their horses were shot and the guns were abandoned between the lines. Hare's brigade was reformed a short distance in the rear of the clearing by the continuous calls of the brigade and regimental bugles, the density of the woods obscuring the position of the troops from each other. Colonel Pearson, having been assisted to mount an unsaddled horse, straightened himself up and in the loud voice called, quote, ATTENTION! I WANT YOU TO UNDERSTAND THAT THIS REGIMENT IS NOT WHIPPED YET, which was received by the regiment with a good-humored laugh, and cries of, CERTAINLY NOT. The musketry fire at close range, continuous and deadly, was kept up all afternoon and evening, with constant picket-firing by both sides, particularly were covering the two pieces of artillery left between the lines. This entanglement of Wilderness was totally unsuitable for artillery operations and maneuvering on this first day, and there were only three or four shots fired from the guns on the opening of the fight. Both Generals Grant and Meade had been at the old Wilderness Tavern about eight o'clock in the morning of the 5th, and it was not the opinion of either of these commanders that the Confederates were present in any great force. On the contrary, it was their belief that General Lee had fallen back and that the forces of the enemy, with which the cavalry had come into contact, were merely Lee's rearguard covering the latter's retreat. How they mistook the true situation, later events showed. We will go ahead and pick up next week for Part 2, The Battle of the Wilderness for Chapter 11. So, I want to give you guys a quick update on how hiking went last week since I had spring break off. I did 30 miles in three days, carrying an entire load of Union Army gear, including eating soldier's ration of meat and coffee. and Of course, who could forget hardtack, which I baked myself. Oddly enough, old Marine Corps injuries protected me from the injuries you'd normally get from wearing this gear. I heard a lot about what happened to I should say I read, (laughs) I didn't hear, I read about a lot of different injuries that soldiers got when they put a lot of this gear on for the first time. And a lot of the calluses that my body sustained from being in the Marine Corps infantry protected me from the gear that I was wearing. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not, but I had relatively little issue wearing this stuff for 30 miles, only a few blisters and uh, some chafing and that kind of thing but like nothing major nothing i couldn't handle either and of course while 30 miles over three days is nice they would cover 30 miles in one day during their marches so let's just put that in perspective shall we